Welcome. This is the Women's Protection and Empowerment Podcast, where we give space to talking about women and girls in humanitarian settings. I'm Christy Crabtree. Technology is a good. It can be a great. Opportunities open up when we bring technology into our programming in terms of efficiency, scale, adaptability. And now more than ever, there's an environment and a growing skill level begging us to bring it more into our programming for disseminating information, empowerment activities or livelihoods, data collection, awareness raising, or behavior change, and generally extending reach to populations on the move or restricted from movement. The opportunities are vast. For individuals, for women and girls, technology brings the promise of strength and self-esteem, access to information, improved decision-making, and the ability to lessen the gender divide. With all these goods coming from this good technology, what do we need to consider when it comes to displaced women and girls utilizing technology in humanitarian settings? What is their starting point? Are there risks unique to females in humanitarian settings? What are the recommendations for technology that bring a needed safety lens or at a minimum look at harm reduction techniques? What is the level of access to technology? What are the barriers and how can we build off this information to design better ways for women and girls to engage with technology? That's exactly the question we wanted to answer. There's a lot of research out there about the gender digital divide in developing or post-conflict countries, and a lot about humanitarian settings and technology, but not much focused on displaced women and girls in humanitarian settings. So joining me today is my partner in crime or partner in research, Petronil Jara, who embarked on answering these questions with me. Petronil is the Women's Protection and Empowerment Coordinator in Lebanon and was my co-investigator and author for this research project we conducted in Lebanon. Welcome, Petronil. Thanks. So let's start with where we're starting. We began this with a question about current levels of access and barriers to access and intended use of phones and internet. What did we find? Respondents, which were all women, already accessing a safe space, whether it's a mobile safe space or a static safe space, known as women community centers, their perception was that mobile phones are highly utilized in the community at 95%. But when it comes to women and girls, the rate drops to 88%. Then when the results are further disaggregated by age group, they decrease further according to the age of women and girls. Adolescent girls aged between 15 and 17 had the lowest rates of use, nearly half of the perceived general population rate at 55% and it's linked to barriers that we'll tackle in a bit that are related to one, family disapproval, and two, community disapproval, that are directly related to fear for the safety of the girls and inappropriateness of the usage of mobile devices and internet. And possession we found of mobile phones followed similarly. Only a third of respondents reported device ownership. The majority trend really was borrowing or sharing devices. We counted sharing as daily access or partial ownership and borrowed as access when needed, but not necessarily daily. Adolescent girls were the lowest here with only 17% reporting ownership, while females age 18 to 24 reported 53% phone ownership. So for adolescent girls, device sharing was with parents or caregivers. And for the 25% of women aged 18 to 24 that shared phones, they were shared pretty evenly with either intimate partners or parents. From the survey, we found there's a reasonable expectation of daily phone use, even if just shared or borrowed devices. But this doesn't mean women and girls are getting the full benefits. 
This sharing or borrowing restricts freedom on decision-making. It also follows a trend of weaker technical literacy and confidence, without having true, free access to devices at will. There's a lot of negatives that go with that. What about the barriers? Can you categorize the findings? Well, cost was the most significant barrier to use. This was first considered device ownership, followed by credit and charging devices. When household income is low, the priority is last for women and girls to have reliable access to devices, and priority is given to men within the household. But even if you got a device, this is impacted by your ability to add credit to the phone and to charge it. The ability to refill credit or battery matched the gendered use of phones. A majority must share credit, ask for credit, or obtain credit through other means, which involves power dynamics and exposes women to a higher risk of exploitation. And a majority were also not able to easily charge their devices. Prohibition or condemnation by a family member or family members or the community was reported as a strong influencing factor restricting use of desire to use. Respondents reported there's always fear for the protection of women and girls, which contributes to the lack of positive social norms around mobile technology used by females. This means that women and girls are missing opportunities to contribute, to advance, to collaborate, which has impacts at the individual, community, and more broadly, national economies. This one barrier is the most impactful though. Social and cultural expectations and perceptions of approval impact someone's ability to be part of public spheres like school or work, which impacts economic or wage earning capabilities, and less exposure means weaker technical literacy and confidence. Yeah, it's truly unique for women and girls. That's what we found in our desktop research. We saw that in developing countries, sentiments about women and girls and their use of mobile devices were that they were using them for romantic liaisons. And although this is very likely an exaggeration or overly protective behavior, we have to plan around that. These perceptions, even if they are just perceptions, can impact someone's safety. So at the base, we need to make sure this doesn't increase harm. The research also revealed trends about preferences. WhatsApp or texting platforms were the most utilized, followed by calls. Again, typically through WhatsApp or Skype, mainly WhatsApp, SMS, games, and news sites, in that order of frequency. There were not significant differences between age groups on functions most frequently utilized. You can see the trend here is for communication. Following on that trend, respondents that reported a desire for increased phone access and use, the primary goal was increased communication with family and friends. This is important when you're thinking about entry points. Communication is a currently utilized function and one that's highly valued. Right, so all of that gave us really a foundation of information to know where they're at with current access levels and to identify barriers. In the end, no surprise, technology use is gendered, meaning women and girls have fewer access opportunities and additional unique barriers. Based on those findings, there's safety planning needed. That's the big outcome that came out of this research. It's not safe to just insert tools and cross your fingers there's a real threat of unintended harm as a result of introducing technology. So breaking this down further, that means specifically planning around devices being shared, borrowed, monitored, and people can still build assumptions off of what women and girls are doing. They may not be founded, but they can still be harmful. 
We also pulled out the findings, some key recommendations. Let's go through the key ones. There's a lot that we wrote up in terms of recommendations, but let's take a look at the priority ones. First, know what's going on, where you're operating. Understand the trends in GBV to determine potential risks in the local context. Trends on gender-based violence can be found from service providers, reporting or coordinating agencies with systems such as the Gender-Based Violence Information Management System. Second, consultations and focus group discussions with different groups of women and girls should be conducted prior to the introduction of any ICT solution to avoid causing unintentional harm. It's really essential to build the trust with communities prior to any introduction or use of any ICT tool. This can be done through ongoing introductory visits or outreach visits to the communities. This can be done through ongoing introductory visits or outreach visits to the communities and non-focused PSS needs assessments to make sure the trust process is progressing. Before these participatory assessments, service providers need to prioritize the safety of women and girls while conducting them. For example, they can ask them where they would like to meet, where they feel safe to meet, what timing suits them better, etc. After considering safety concerns and trust building, participatory assessments should include community mapping for safety concerns. These safety concerns can provide information about power dynamics that could affect safe mobile use. For example, information about high rates of intimate partner violence combined with trends in device sharing or borrowing should trigger a consideration for harm reduction techniques. Right, and, and we're also looking generally at planning for safe use. So for adequate utilization, service providers should include safety planning around real and perceived risks of GBV induced by technology adoption. In this Lebanon survey, in our research, only a third of female respondents reported device ownership. Most borrowed or shared devices with intimate partners, parents, or in-laws. And sharing or borrowing, as we mentioned before, restricts the full benefits of phone usage and really affects the freedom of women and girls in choosing and making decisions on their phone usage. Additionally, this impacts their technical literacy and confidence. It's a bit of a trickle down. So service providers should also look at doing a digital safety mapping. So in this, you would walk women and girls through developing a visual representation of how they currently use mobile phones or other devices on the internet, how they would like to use them, and their safety concerns. The activities would allow service providers to understand risks and ways to mitigate them. This could be done through focus group discussions, to propose solutions and gather feedback from women and girls. For example, uh, an information awareness campaign that shared news about service availabilities. Service providers could gather feedback about the specific information women and girls want, the timing of the message, uh, if the message should be disguised with other information, and also the preferred channel, for example, WhatsApp, uh, and then any safety concerns. So in, in terms of that last point on safety concerns, what we're really talking about are the precautions that we need to build into all ICT solutions with women and girls. This means consulting women and girls in advance of deploying an ICT intervention to assess their unique safety risks and also the feasibility. We really recommend based off our research 
ensuring that additional harm is not introduced and that ICT tools or platforms that are utilized are, are really used in the manner intended. And, and part of that, again, is making this assumption that we've talked about. Assuming mobile devices are shared or borrowed should force you as an implementer to consider uh, wrapping, associating, or including really sensitive content like gender-based violence response services with other general information. So this could be having a website or a Facebook page that highlights women's health services and discussed in kind of a masked manner intimate partner violence. Um, or implementers could also look at things like quick escape buttons that are on a lot of IC2 tools. Community sensitization could be a crucial activity to raise community member awareness about the purpose and content of any new ICT tool. This can help to prevent rumors or rejection of the tool's implementation and help to build confidence in the tool's purpose. Right. And ensuring women and girls are informed about the risks and signs of technology abuse. So part of our assessment should be assessing for technology abuse and building that into our discussions about safety with survivors and embedded as part of this overall safety planning process for technology. Casework staff can ask questions about safety concerns as it relates to technology. They can identify the types of technology being used. So application, websites, social media, other communication channels that are used by perpetrators and assess what the survivor understands about that abuse. Talk to women and girls in the initial planning phase, talk to them often, validate proposed ICT solutions with them, and plan to mitigate risks. Talk to them, involve them, validate. It's worth repeating. Absolutely. That's the base thing that came out of all of our research is that talking to, assessing, checking with, validating, all of those things are crucial to make sure that technology doesn't introduce more harm, even if unintended. So if you want to read more, you can read the full article, uh, all of our research, the results from the survey and the recommendations in more detail by searching safety planning for technology, displaced women and girls interactions with information and communication technology in Lebanon and harm reduction considerations for humanitarian settings. It was published in the Journal of International Humanitarian Action in March. So thanks for joining Petronil and thanks for listening. Safety, voice, respect. Join the WPE movement.